It sounds like GE lost a 5.5 megawatt turbine over in Lithuania. Rosemary, pre-show here, we were talking about this and I said, oh, it, Rosemary, it's got to be a blade, right? You, you blade designers, you know, it's just haphazardly designing blades. And you came yeah. back to me and said, <laughs> no, Alan, you idiot. What'd you, what'd, <laughs> what'd you say? I didn't say you're an idiot. I wouldn't say something so so rude, <laughs> even even off camera. <laughs> no, I, I totally would. But no, I, I felt a bit a bit miffed because you know that that's my background. Welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Alan Hall, here with Rosemary Barnes. We have a great episode today, a lot on the docket. Uh, Federal Reserve United States is going to push up interest rates to slow down inflation. U.S. tech giants are buying more power purchase agreements. Amazon's leading the pack again. And in other news, Rosemary? LM Wind Power has made the longest thermoplastic wind turbine blade um, that's ever been made. And there's been a GE 5.5 megawatt turbine collapse in Lithuania. Oh, boy. Uh, more engineering news. OK. <laughs> that's what we're here for, isn't it? Yeah, I, I hope so. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we have we have a lot to talk about today. Let's 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 kick off the episodes by talking about U.S. interest rates. Uh, so anybody following the inflation in, in the United States realizes that inflation has has been historically over the last 10 years, about one to two percent. Now we're at eight percent and still climbing. The, the, the rate of change, the acceleration of interest rates is astronomical, something that hasn't been seen in my lifetime, for sure. So uh, it has a, a big impact on renewable energy. Uh, Some more recent articles. And I just saw an article yesterday from the Federal Reserve saying they may accelerate those interest rate increases. So what happens in the United States is the Federal Reserve act as the handler between banks. So there's an overnight interest rate charge as banks transfer checks and deposits across the country. So what they're doing, that the Fed is doing, is that they control those interest rates, how much they hold that money for, and they charge them a percentage. That has been essentially zero since the start of COVID, or really close to zero. Now we're seeing that the Federal Reserve is trying to, to uh, try to restrict the money supply, slow down inflation, try to get it back under 5%, which is going to be a difficult task. And so what they do is they make gradual increases. So it, Rosemary, from an engineering perspective, you don't want anything drastic to happen, right? That seems normal. So they're, they're, they usually make quarter percentage increases. Now they're talking about half a percentage increase. So they were talking about six quarter percent increases over the year. Uh, so it raised the interest rates to around two, two and a half percent. Now they're talking make half half point jumps. That's a significant deal in America. And having done some research on this, Rosemary, a lot of renewable projects are, quote unquote, leveraged. It's on borrowed money, which makes sense. Right. So, Rosemary, do you you invest in the stock market? Are you are you in Bitcoin or Doge? Or no, 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 not in, in Bitcoin, but I, in stocks. Yeah, I definitely every time that I, um, you know, like I'm researching an interesting company, then I, I'll buy a small amount of money and uh, buy a small amount of money worth of stocks. Um, and yeah, sometimes they go they go great. <laughs> and usually usually they go to nothing because I buy things where I like the technology and, um, you know, most most of the cool things fail. But yeah, every now and then I. Uh, I get a good one. So, Rose, let's just say we'll, we'll create a Rosemary Empire, right? Rosemary Empire has investments in in uh, a lot of different stocks and 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 is returning an investment of just say ten percent, fifteen percent in the stock market. Say it's fifteen percent in the stock market. When you go to your bank, your local bank, and you put money in the bank, the the amount of interest they pay you for a checking account is 
essentially zero right now, right? So it's one or two percent. So if if Rosemary has a bunch of cash, where are you going to put it? Are you going to put it in the bank or are you going to put it in the stock market? Yeah, exactly. There's been nothing else to do with money recently except for putting it in, in the stock market. Like you can't even, you'd be lucky to get 2%. I would dream of 2% on a term deposit these days. Right. And interest rates are low. Exactly. So interest rates are low. So it's easier to borrow money and take the money you do have and put it into an investment than to use that money to uh, pay for operations, for example. So what's happening now is that renewable projects, which may be greater than 50% leverage, I saw some numbers that may indicate higher than that, that those interest rates are going to start rising. So the ability to make money in the market versus uh, borrow money, that, that, that's going to gradually decrease. So the margins are going to become razor thin to the point where they're going to be getting much closer together. So it's not as advantageous to invest in the stock market. In the United States, I think that's going to have an impact on some of these renewable energy projects. And I, I don't know what it is in Australia, Rosemary. Are, are you guys going through the same sort of thing? In a way, yes, but it's really different. I've just got an article from um, ABC News up because I read it recently about inflation and it just sounded so strange to me. So, I mean, our inflation is not as, as high as a lot of the rest of the world. It's only at about three and a half percent now. Um, and our interest rate still effectively zero. It's, you know, a tiny bit above zero. And every now and then they talk about maybe increasing rates. But um, yeah, this recent analysis that I was reading said, even though yeah, inflation is, is rising and it's above the, the target band, they're saying, well, it's not inflation driven by consumers feeling really keen to go spend their money. It's just inflation that's being pushed on people by, you know, the price of oil going up. So petrol prices are higher or, you know, the same thing flowing through to all sorts of other things. I know it's really hard to get building materials at the moment. They're super expensive. And so this economist that's written this article reckons that that means that they shouldn't raise the interest rates because it won't do anything, anything about it because it's, yeah, it's not, um, yeah, it's not a demand pull inflation. It's a cost push pull cost push inflation. Yeah, I don't know. It seems strange to me that Australia is so different to, to what's going on in the rest of the world. But um, I'm actually personally keen to see interest rates go up in Australia because um, me and my partner are trying to buy a house and property prices are really inflated because interest rates are so low at the moment. So everyone can borrow a lot of money. And um, yeah, so we're kind of hoping that rates will go up and property prices will come down. Oh, boy. Yeah, we, we don't want the housing collapse in Australia, that's for sure. But uh, usually usually they're raising, usually interest rates in the United States are, are typically in the three to four percentage that what the Fed has been historically been. And I think we're going to need to get back to that number. But I, I do see a huge impact on renewable energy product. And whether they can borrow money cheaply is a big deal, uh, because uh, as we just saw with uh, uh, off the coast of New York, where they've had some leases sold, where they had $4 billion of leases, I'm sure some of the calculations about that $4 billion offered, it has something to do with interest rates. Uh, so the, that, that, the, the equations are changing too fast, and, and hopefully everybody is, is going to be okay, because we definitely need to get to some more renewable projects, uh, particularly offshore in the United States. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens there. Uh, in power purchase agreement land, which seems to be a, mostly a U.S. phenomenon, uh, there's been a roughly a 20, 25% uptick in purchases from uh, 2020 to 2021. Uh, most of that has been spent or purchased by U.S. tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft, uh, Google, and what Facebook calls themselves now, which I guess is made, Meta. Meta? I don't, don't understand that, but okay. right? We all understand it's still Facebook. Uh, so they have, they've had a lot of contracts 
offered. Uh, it seems like the the renewable energy effort in America and also across the world is starting to get into power purchase agreements. Rosemary, is this uh, how how impactful? I mean, if if you were able to sell the power before you built the wind turbine farm, how big of a deal is that? Is that just pure security? Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, this is, I don't think that there's very many um, renewable, like big wind or solar farm developments going ahead in the last, you know, probably 10 years or, or more that haven't had a significant chunk um, of, of the um, production covered by PPAs. Uh, I, I think, yeah, it's been a really, really big part in the, the early growth of of those kinds of projects because you know it wasn't until pretty recently that they were really you know competitive on their own merits it, it was driven a lot by people wanting to pay a bit more for the green energy you know selling um, their customers green en energy or um yeah for companies like amazon or or facebook or whoever they you know like the the image that goes along with saying yeah okay we're an energy intensive business but we're doing it in a green way um, so yeah, that's really been a big part. It's a, it's a lot of a lot of security um, for the developers, um, and it's a really complicated area. I think it's changing all the time, and maybe the durations that people are signing up for now are shorter than they used to be. Like they won't cover the full length. So, you know, if um, Facebook wants to buy a gigawatt of, of power, they won't buy it for the full like 20, 30 year lifetime of the wind farm. They might only buy it for five or 10 years because, you know, the price of um, renewables is dropping so rapidly that we saw a lot of people who got in early um, that, you know, they commit to a price at the start of a project and then by the end of the project, they're paying way more than the, the wholesale price for, for those um, kinds of energy. So. Yeah, if I was a, a financial type, then I think that would be a really interesting area to get into because it's it, it's always always changing. And I you know I think I understand what's going on with PPAs and then yeah changes and I don't understand anymore. <laughs> well, does this roll into a levelized cost of energy? It's like buying power futures, for example. I, that's a big thing in the aviation community for airlines is that they want to have a stabilized price of fuel, right? So you, you want to know a year from now, I'm paying X for the fuel. Even if it goes up or down, at least I know what it is. In, in this more volatile environment for electricity prices and fuel prices across the world, does that then maybe give uh, an Amazon an advantage that they know what the electricity price is next year? Yeah, and I think more crucially is they know that they can get it. Um, because, you know, if they've made commitments to a certain amount of green energy and then they just rely on buying it off the, the market, uh, you know, if a lot of other um, companies also make those commitments, then there might not be actually the, the you know, projects available to supply all that. So then you're going to end up, you know, having made a promise that you can't fulfill. And uh, I think it's got a lot more to do with that in the, the case of green energy. So uh, looking at the numbers here, Amazon was the largest buyer last year at 6.2 gigawatts. I could not believe that the... The numbers there. It's a lot, right? It's it's a lot, yeah. They, they, uh, Amazon has now a portfolio of 13, almost 14 gigawatts. Th that's massive for one company to, to use that kind of energy. And, and Microsoft has about nine gigawatts. Yeah, and Facebook's about eight. So those the big tech players in the United States have, you know, almost 
well, 25 uh, megawatts, a little more, uh, almost 30 gigawatts of energy that they're buying via PPAs. And I, I, I do see that trend to continue. And I think you may, this is the weird thing about inflation right now. You may get people locking in more energy because the price of electricity is going to go up, obviously, has to, uh, that they want to grab those PPAs now, like on the offshore wind projects off the United States. They may be doing that because it does tell you what your energy prices are going to be. So they may be doing it for a green, renewable reason, but they also may be a financial reason to do it, to, to at least lock in some electricity rates. And hey, you know, Microsoft uses a lot of electricity. Amazon with their big servers uses a lot of electricity um, because everybody's photos and <laughs> all your email runs through AWS probably. So um, that, that's an interest, that's an interesting uh, development and we'll probably see more of it this year. So, Rosemary, you want to talk about uh, all the cool engineering news we have going on this week? Yeah, so the most exciting one, and it's a topic that I've been watching since about 2010, um, about recyclable wind turbine blades, because everybody's seen those images of, you know, um, blades going into landfill, and I don't know, it just feels like people are constantly talking about how wind turbine blades are unrecyclable, and it's this huge problem. And now we've seen finally a large wind turbine blade um, that's been manufactured. There's a physical blade made from thermoplastic resin that will be able to be recycled. So it was made in the Ponferrada factory in Spain by um, my old colleagues at LM Wind Power. Hey, shout out. Yeah, shout out. I know some of the people involved in that project and they've been really passionate about this for you know years now. So it's cool to see that come to fruition. And then the next step is that they're going to, to test it. I've got to do, you know, the, all, the, all the normal wind turbine blade testing. And then after that, then they've got to recycle it. Um, and I think already they've been, they took the scrap from manufacturing um, and they're recycling that as well. So. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been following this since I, um, yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in, in composites. So when I went back to uni to do my PhD and started going to composite materials conferences, um, yeah, more than 10 years ago, that's always been a major topic. Um, it, at that time, no one was thinking about it specifically for wind turbine blades, but for composites in general. I mean, wind turbine blades only make up 5% of the world's <laughs> composite products. So, you know, well, there's a lot of um, airplanes and cars and boats, um, construction that also is made of composite materials that um, haven't been able to be recycled until now. And yeah, I know, um, I, I remember I cited in my thesis two or three different um, papers that had designed full-size full thermoplastic wind turbine blades and the earliest one was like 2007. So, I mean, it's taken that long to go from we knew that you could feasibly do it even with the materials back then, um, but now it, it takes a company, you know, to decide to spend money on this. And it is a bit of a departure from normal kind of technology development in the um, wind turbine OEMs because Obviously, the development time frame for this is much longer than normally what happens um, with a new technology is you get a customer that comes to you and says, we've got this project, but we need a technology, technology on it that doesn't currently exist. So, you know, develop that for us and that we want to buy these blades in six months. Yeah, and the OEMs are usually really reluctant to, <laughs> to just go off on a tangent and decide that something should be done and is a good idea and, you know, put the, the money up for the development without knowing that they're going to be able to sell it later. So it's really interesting to see that they've prioritized this. And I mean, I think it's really smart because I'm sure that as soon as one manufacturer has come up with like a, a, 
a proper, um, you know, like a, a feasible design, feasible materials once the, you know, the, um, the lifetime is the same, the strength's the same, and the cost is, you know, like somewhere in the ballpark. As soon as one manufacturer has a, a recyclable blade like that, I think that um, countries are going to start to regulate and say that you have to have this. Um, so I think it, it is smart to be a first mover, and I know that that's why um, most of the manufacturers started working on recyclable blades um, a long, long time before. I mean, currently there are no regulations about that, but everyone was working on it before because they knew that there would come a day when they were told, well, you have to re be able to recycle it or you can't sell it in our country. And, you know, you don't want to be the, <laughs> the only ones that can't, can't sell if, you know, the EU says, says that and you're like, oh, okay, well, we'll go bankrupt because <laughs> it'll take us five years to make a, a blade like that. So, yeah, it is an example of, of forward thinking. Rosemary, the, the uh, technology they're using is Arkema's Elium liquid thermoplastic resin. It's a two-piece resin system, so they can uh, injection infuse or resin infuse a blade system. That that material was the same one that uh, GE and NREL and in the states here were developing and made some smaller pieces of blades. So this is a natural extension. Uh, it's a 62 meter blade that was made at the Ellen plant in Spain, uh, which is pretty big, right? That's a, that's a massive size blade for a, a new technology. Tell us, so the next step is they're going to send it up to Denmark, right? They're going to send it to Denmark to their test and validation center, and they're going to do a bunch of structural tests. How many months does that turn into to really do a structural evaluation? And I assume they just made one blade here. Uh, would you, with new technology, try to make two, three, four blades to make sure that the technology is consistent between the manufacturing process? Uh, eventually, yes. I mean, they're not, this isn't a blade that they've got earmarked for or a turbine as far as I know. So that I don't think they're on the same kind of um, time frame that you normally are. Normally you don't, yeah, your test blade, it's the first blade that you make, but you make the second, third, fourth, fifth one immediately afterwards. Um, but obviously then if there's a problem with your test blade, you don't get the chance to, <laughs> to go back and do anything about it. So, I mean, this is, this is, Big. It's a big deal to replace your whole resin system, and they would have had to replace the, the replacing the, the glass isn't such a big deal, um, but it would have still it, it would be a different um, a different supplier, a different um, you know finish on the glass. So uh, there's a chance that you know that it's not going to perform exactly as they expect. I mean, if you think about the normal um, materials that they're using, that they're used to using, be doing exactly the same, uh, basically for you know decades for most manufacturers, very reluctant to ever change any of their materials um, because they have this you know huge history with it. They know exactly how it behaves. They've got a lot of not just of um, you know like lab tests with it, which they, they would have done the lab tests already and um, you know component tests probably for this new material as well, but with the the old materials, the old resins, they've got operational experience as well. You know, they've got blades that have lasted their full full lifetime and, you know, they know how they fail or, or don't fail. And so, you know, the risk is very low. But with this new material, they, you know, they've done some analysis. So they've done the, the lab stuff and they've they've got some, you know, certain idea of, of what its properties are like. And um, I know that the resin manufacturer states that it's got very similar properties to a um, traditional thermoset resin. So, I mean, that's... Um, that's excellent. That means the blade won't need to be a lot heavier than, um, than you know, if you, yeah, if you use like a normal thermoplastic, it's usually not as stiff as a, a thermoset. 
yeah, but still, when they test it out, when they do the fatigue test, you know, it's not going to be exactly the way that they expected and they've probably got some high, um, high margins on there as well, some safety margins <laughs> to, to account for that and those will come down as they get more experience. So I think it makes sense in this case to make one blade, see how it goes and then once you've done that and you've you know, got a customer that wants to buy whole turbines with these blades on it, then you would, uh, yeah, then, then you'd start pushing the production up. You think, we, you think we're going to see a uh, tested blade complete the, the fatigue cycles this fall? Is it like a three-month, a six-month uh, test at the, at the development center, at the test center? Yeah, it's months long. They, um, it's really cool, actually. It's um, worth looking up on, on YouTube. Um, they, they put the blade in a, you know, they attach the, the root end to something that looks like a, a hub. And then they sit these things on and they call them exciters, but it's basically a thing that, you know, like gets it, um, gets it resonating, you know, gets it moving. Like if you're, you know, I don't know, sitting on a, a seesaw and you're trying to, you know, bounce up and down and, and get that, um, you know, excite the, the natural frequency. And, and then they just let it, let it wobble for, um, yeah, for, for months. Um, so, you know, you've got to get as many, as many bends as it would see um, in a lifetime um, and you've got to do it quickly. So they, you know, they up the load a bit and they up the frequency as much as they can. Um, and yeah, it takes, it takes months. So if I was searching on YouTube and I happened to stumble across the Engineering with Rosie YouTube channel, would there be an example of this blade testing going on? No, I, I would love for... Uh, oh my gosh. Well, all right. No, I would love... That here, I, can, I can pitch to a, a manufacturer, any manufacturer. You let me into your factory or your test center and I will make a, a video for you for free <laughs> on my channel showing how the um, blade manufacturing and blade testing happens because... Yeah, uh, no manufacturers that I know will let anyone anywhere near them, especially not with a camera. So um, yeah, that's not been a video that I have been able to do, unfortunately. But please get in touch, anyone who, who, who wants to let me into their factory or test facility. So what, what are the implications here? Oh, you know, they, they should let you in there because uh, it would be a really great PR marketing move. Now, it, the, the, the one of the key things I think is gonna be uh, probably the harder or the more difficult part is because they're moving to a thermoplastic, uh, something you could heat up and fusion bond and, and it's, it's a different type of material. Uh, remember that we have thousands, tens of thousands of technicians that are very familiar and have gone through the GWO certification for repairing blades with thermosets. Do we start the clock over again? Do we have to bring everybody back through to get them trained on this Arkema material because it is a thermal or, or, or it, because it's a thermal plastic or is there a, a way to thermal set to thermal plastic so you can use existing resin systems for repairs to bond to this material? Is there is, is I think there's a lot of open questions on the repairability side and probably maybe even the rain erosion side. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that there are many open questions. I mean, we've only just got one blade made now. Um, so yeah, and no thermoplastic blade has ever been on a turbine. So for sure, they don't know much about um, rain erosion. I mean, you can put it in a um, in a rain erosion tester, they have labs that do that, but it's not the same as, as putting it on a, a real uh, wind turbine and spinning it around in some rain and dust and bugs. Yes. The repairs, the repair methods, I don't know. It's possible. Any of those things that you mentioned are possible, but yeah, I don't know for sure. Um, and at the moment, I mean, not all wind turbine blades have the same resin. You know, some of them have um, epoxy resin and some of them have vinyl ester and some of them have polyester and and so it's not just a matter of like someone doesn't 
someone shouldn't just sh <laughs> show up to a broken wind turbine and just, you know, whack whatever um, patch on there that they feel like without knowing what the blade material is made of. That, that would already not work today, <laughs> that, that idea. Um, but that said, yeah, anybody that's gone through the GWO accreditation, um, and you don't need that to, like not every service team has that, has technicians with that accreditation. But yeah, if, if you had that, then you would probably need to learn about the thermoplastic resins before doing those repairs. I'm sure uh, on the repair side, someone's going to get the great idea to, to heat bond uh, the laminates together because it makes sense, right? It's probably faster if you can get enough heat into it. It's probably faster. And it's one of the benefits that people state that when they're, when they're you know, well, when you see someone doing research on thermoplastic blades, usually they're talking about, you know, having modular things and swapping out components and, um, yeah, easy repairs. And that's because you can just, um, yeah, weld them together. But I do think, I think I read with this particular resin that it's not actually recycled by just heating it. It says that it uses an advanced method called chemical recycling. And that you know somehow chemically gets the the you know the polymers um, to disentangle from each other. So um, maybe this one you won't be welding to repair it. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know so much about the the specifics. The some of the some of the technology I have seen via YouTube is the uh, use of a, of a of a very mild what they call a mild acid something in the realm of lemon juice that's how it's been described it's not lemon juice obviously because you, know, you don't want to have a wind farm around a lemon uh, field that would be bad but so it's a it's a mild acid plus a little bit of heat that's the combo that's the magic key that unlocks the the and split allows the molecules to split apart in the thermoplastic so that you can recover i guess you can recover both sides of the of the uh, resin system and in theory, I guess, reuse it. That, that's what they're talking about. So it, as it has an infinite life cycle, I, I, that can't be, right? You know it's going to be a little dirty and it's going to have bugs in it and all the stuff. Yeah, and they do say, oh, you, you know, you'll um, do this recycling process and then you'll have virgin resin again. But I find that pretty hard to believe. I mean, it's just not the way of the world that, <laughs> you know, you recycle something and get a, a material that's just as good afterwards. Um, yeah, so we'll see. And I think that they still have some hurdles to overcome with the, the glass part of it, because obviously, you know, the glass fibers come in a, a fabric. And so you're not just going to, you know, get rid of the resin and then the fabric's going to be just ready to use again. So I'll be highly surprised if we see, you know, like one wind turbine, an old wind turbine um, blade recycled into one new wind turbine blade, you know, like it's not it's not going to be like for like replacement, but it's it's a step in the right direction. It's better than all. I see. I, I smell the marketing on this. Uh, this new blade made with 100% recycled material. That has already happened. Somebody's already made the the website for that at, at LM. I guarantee it. <laughs> that that uh, because that is such a huge marketing point. Think about it. If you, if you if you could offer a 100% recycled blade made from reused material, recycled material, that is the uh, uh, the the pinnacle of recycling, right? In a renewable sense. Take a look at your recycled plastic shopping bags the next time you go buy groceries. They're only 80% recycled plastic. And I mean, they've got a lot of a less demanding, <laughs> um, yeah, it's less demanding use of those uh, recycled, that recycled plastic than a wind turbine blade. So um, yeah, I, I just, 
I don't think you'd ever get to 100%, um, especially not for something so critical. I, I think, I mean, usually when they're, because you can already recycle, already recycle wind turbine blades if you really want to, but, you know, they do it by um, sh shredding it and... Burning it. <laughs> burning it, hopefully not burning it. Turning it into decking material or, you know, like making um, park furniture or like, flooring or, you, you know, something that is structural, but it's a lot lower value or dashboards um, and trays for for um, pickup trucks. We call them utes here. Um, utes, okay. Short for utility, and they were an Australian invention, so we would know We would know what they're called. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow your roll there. I, I'm not sure that that is fact. I'll check the Wikipedia page on that one. I, I doubt it's gonna be on Australia-based term, but okay. Invented by a farmer who wanted a one car that he could use in the farm during the week and still take his mum to Sunday, on, uh, to church on Sunday and not, you know, not mess up her church dress. Oh, isn't that nice? Well, we'll, we'll give Australia that one. No, I mean, it, it's fair enough because Australia does often claim to have invented things that we didn't really uh, invent or we invented one small component of, but I believe that that one's accurate. Yeah, anyway, back to the, the recycling, you usually see products going to lower and lower kind of um, value um, products uh, as they have, you know, as they get reincarnated into, <laughs> into their new lives um, and I'll, yeah, I expect the same will happen here. Well, I, I hope so too, right? The the goal of all this is to make a more recyclable, reusable economy and hopefully cut some of the manufacturing costs out of making blades. That's a, that's another huge benefit here is it may be less expensive to manufacture blades. That's going to help lower the cost of producing wind turbines. And then maybe some of the wind turbine companies start making some money. That, you know, that, that's all in the positive direction. So speaking, speaking of money, and it sounds like GE lost a 5.5 megawatt turbine over in Lithuania. Rosemary, uh, you know, pre-show here, we were talking about this, and I said, oh, it, Rosemary, it's got to be a blade, right? You, you blade designers, you know, it's just haphazardly designing blades. And you came yeah. back to me and said, <laughs> no, Alan, you idiot. What'd you, what'd, you, <laughs> what'd you say? I didn't say you're an idiot. I wouldn't say something so so rude, <laughs> even even off camera. <laughs> no, I, I totally would. But no, I, I felt a bit a bit miffed because you know that that's my background. Um, wind turbine blade structural design, and uh, yeah, I just think you always assume that it's a blade that's that's broken and caused these turbine failures. But usually, if I see a whole turbine that's failed, especially it's not like a new design. I assume that it's foundation or, you know, something that um, could have been done just wrong in the in the installation because this was a, a Cyprus wind turbine. GE has sold so many of them around the world and I haven't heard of others that have just completely collapsed. So I'm assuming it's not a design problem. Like it could have been a manufacturing fault and it could, it's possible, yeah, if um, a blade had some fault that caused it to just, you know, like fly off the the um, tower or the hub, I mean, or, you know, maybe if it just, you know, snapped and um, hit the tower, then yeah, of course that could, you know, it, once it gets really unbalanced, then they will eventually <laughs> shake themselves apart. But yeah, it's really, uh, it's kind of interesting to see what people assume is going wrong here. I think it, uh, I don't know, it's evidence of, of biases that we all have. Like I always assume, oh, I wouldn't have been one of the blades guys. No, <laughs> they're so smart. Has to be the guy that, Poured the concrete, right? It has to be. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 yeah, there, exactly. are, there are there are other because that's something I've got nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it didn't tighten the bolts properly. And I, I have, you know, that raises a really good point because we do have seen those those wind turbines up in Canada have the concrete pad issue where it was under design. They had a turbine fall over. That has happened. And, and I've been watching more and more LinkedIn content. Why I'm doing that, I don't know. But so about people tightening bolts uh, uh, on the towers, like tying them down to the pad. And uh, the way I've seen that done is sometimes a little scary, actually. Uh, and I always wonder, are they tight? Right now, now Lithuania is not, uh, you know, that, that it's a country that has a lot of brain power, right? I mean, a lot of, I've seen that for in the aviation community for years. So, <clears throat> so it's hard to believe they didn't tighten the bolts, but, you know, it's something that's, that has to uh, be really looked at. They need an RCA on it. Right? Uh, the, it sounded like they shut down all the other wind turbines in the park until they figured out what was happening. But how, how long would it take to get to a root cause on that, just in, in a generic sense, a day, a week, a month, a year. Oh, I mean, it would it would come in stages. So I think within a, a day, you'd probably have some, <laughs> you know, some theories. Um, within a week, you would have ruled out a lot of those. I mean, you can look at the pieces of the blades on the ground, and um, you can see, or oh, did this break from, you know, like falling onto the ground and hitting the ground, or did it, um, you know, snap in half and then. Yeah, if you can see that the blade broke before anything else did, then, you know, that would be <laughs> your indication that that's the direction to follow up. Um, yeah, but I think one of the reasons why I always look towards the foundations as the, as the root cause that always jumps out as me as a plausible reason is just because there's natural variation, you know, like you don't know exactly what's going on underground and you don't know exactly the conditions, the temperature, the moisture, all those sorts of things can, um, can cause problems. So it's like less of a like pure human error kind of, kind of thing. But Certainly, you see failures in all, all all parts of a wind turbine. At you know every now and then, so any of them are possible. And unfortunately, the engineers that do the root cause analysis they never share the results publicly. So all we all we get to do is is speculate every time <laughs> what happened here. That, that, you bring up a really good point there. Is that we we don't really hear what the end result is. Obviously, the OEMs know and the operators know what what the root cause was and, and the engineers involved in that. You know, one of the things that we do in aviation, and part of our business is aviation, is that we, we see those root cause analysis happen because there's usually it takes a year of time for the federal governments to, to put together the report. But we get a report typically within a month, uh, a quickie report, like here's why the airplane crashed, and, and, or here's all the details behind it. And then the more detailed analysis, like really detailed analysis down to metallurgy, uh, pilot interactions, uh, you know, uh, history of the airplane all comes in a, in a massive report about a year later. And uh, that is used to then uh, push the industry into looking at their particular design to make sure that, that doesn't happen with their aircraft. And uh, we don't have that system in wind turbines yet. I, I think as we go along here, particularly as we get offshore and the turbines start to get <laughs> bigger than most buildings, that we're going to have some sort of uh, agency that's going to want to do root cause analysis and in a generic sense put out what has happened maybe not what the fix is because the we don't know what the fixes are on airplanes in a very specific sense we don't know like they don't go into details about the designs but they go about the, you know what happened I, I think that's an important factor so if, if you're right about the foundation obviously they, they poured other foundations that probably are just fine right so what about that particular foundation was off was it the mix of the concrete was it the time of day was it too hot too cold 
you know, all those variables come into it. And I think it's better for us to get that out in the open so that we don't repeat these mistakes elsewhere. So there's my two cents on RCAs. And, you know, this kind of ties into the situation in Ireland uh, at the Derry Bryan wind farm, which is a 70 turbine wind farm with Vestas V52s. Uh, they have about 60 megawatts of production there. That's, that wind farm was developed in 2003. It became operational in 2006. But during that early construction phase, and that wind farm is kind of built in a, in a peat bog. Right? So if you've ever been around Ireland in, in peat bogs, it's not the most stable ground in the world. Right. So um, when they were going to, to build this wind farm, they had a, a basically a peat moss slide. Like, so a part of a hill collapsed and uh, early on they stopped work. Uh, the, it sounds like the European Union got involved from an agency standpoint to look at it and said, hey, uh, this isn't cool. Now, they went ahead and still built the wind farm, and it's been operational since 2006. So now we're in 2022. That's a long time, 16 years, 15, 16 years of operation. But now the European Court of Justice is saying, you're done. You, you, the, the initial permit wasn't correct. Uh, there's been, they, they ruled that, uh, that the original approval was invalid, and they did that in 2019. And ever since then, they've been fining Ireland for having this wind turbine farm operational. So now uh, the wind turbine farm was, was going to extend itself. It was going to go, try to go to 2040. The European Court of Justice has said, we're done. Tear it all down. Now, Rosemary, I know there's, uh, the world is changing very rapidly underneath our feet. Uh, does this make sense uh, that they had a, a construction problem in, in 2003 and we're 20 years later that now the wind farm should come down is that a, is that a smart move from a, just an energy perspective oh from an energy perspective no obviously not I, I don't think it's about that i don't even think it's about the environmental impact of this one wind farm anymore because the environmental damage was that you know the the um permit was taken away because the environmental permits weren't correct or you know they turned out to not be adequate um due to some damage that happened during the um, construction and then some remediation work we had to do, they had to do after that landslide. Um, so obviously like you don't reduce the environmental impact by then going and pulling out the, the wind turbine that's been you know fine for the last few years. I assume the point is like punitive or like to set an example, it's like, you know, because if you just let people, oh, well, you didn't have the environmental approvals in place, but now it's there. So you can, you can leave it there and continue to make money from it. I mean, that would just be a really big incentive for, you know, like cowboy developers to just go do whatever, you know, like um, easier to ask for forgiveness than, <laughs> than permission. Um, so I assume it's just sending a, a message to any anybody that was thinking that would be a good strategy that not nah, you'll <laughs> you'll lose a lot of money if you um, if you do that, that the environmental protections are serious and you have to follow them and um, yeah, we'll do, <laughs> we'll go to great lengths to make sure that you don't profit from a project that didn't look after the environment properly. That's the only way it makes sense to me if that's, if that's what they're getting at. Yeah, it does, doesn't it kind of get into timelines of what is swift justice? Like there, there's a certain time frame, like in the United States on a lot of, like if I commit a crime, I, I, they have seven years to catch me. 
after seven years, I, you know, that, that crime doesn't count anymore. And that's essentially how it goes, right? There's a, there's a time frame in which you must be prosecuted. And if you don't do it quickly, then, you know, you lose the right to prosecute. It, it feels like this European Court of Justice uh, is, has no timeline. That, that this thing just keeps rolling around the courts and no one ever makes a real decision. And then it gets to this catastrophic, in, well, I think catastrophic ending, because you're taking 60 megawatts off the table in Ireland. Uh, that, you know, at, what, at what point do we have to put some time frames on these things? If, if, if the landslide was so critical back in 2003, why didn't they just halt the project then? Does this? I don't know how this makes sense because in, in a in a green renewable energy future, these kind of situations in the courts are going to be intolerable. Because you can imagine what what happened offshore, right? Um, are we are we in the process of building up and tearing down because the courts changed their minds essentially? Uh, or, 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 uh, there's no indication of fraud here, right? I don't think I have at least everything I've read about this case is not like there was it was done with malice. It just seems like the paperwork wasn't as thorough as it could have been. Therefore, it doesn't count. Does, does that make does that make any sense right now? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I see your point, but I do think that um, I mean it's important for community acceptance that um, that any kind of project, including a you know green energy project, needs to you know look after the environment. And um, I think usually in Europe, there the people are very focused focused on that. And I think that you know the whole the whole wind industry would quickly lose its social license if you know it was seen to just not care what happened to the environment. Um, I don't know that the court has changed its mind at all. I think that there's been a round of, um, you know, findings and appeals and um, appeals against appeals and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, it does sound slow, but, you know, I always expect uh, <laughs> the, the EU bureaucracy. I mean, it doesn't sound like something that would move quickly, does it? <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think the point is that they had all of the reports that they needed to get the initial environmental permit, but the fact that they had this big landslide that should have not ever happened if they had done those reports properly, it suggested that they weren't weren't done correctly. And I think that's fair enough. Um, you know, it's pretty pretty hard for um, it, it's it's hard to check up on some of those things. And I think that there should be some sort of you know penalty for for people that. Um, yeah, that make big mistakes like that. I mean, we see a lot of it in Australia um, with mining companies like, oh, whoops, we just uh, excavated this important, um, you know, indigenous Australian site that, you know, was 50,000 years old and, oh, well, it's gone now, so we'll just continue to mine. And, you know, I think that, that that's kind of a common big business strategy that they, they just make, you know, mistakes like that. They pay a fine and then they move on and they, you know, like a, to the general public, it just seems like, you know, really cynical that they never, <laughs> never intended to play by the rules. And I, I think that this is the way that, you know, like you've got to make sure that companies operate within a set of regulations that keeps them, yeah, behaving in a way that the community is, is happy with. So I, I think if you didn't, didn't do stuff like this, then you might end up with some pretty poor environmental outcomes in the long run. So whilst it seems really harsh for this one developer, um, I can kind of see the point of, of making sure that, you know, everyone follows the rules and the intent of the rules, not just like, you know, oh, we got a report, but we, 
you know, just paid, I don't know, some intern 50 bucks to, <laughs> to write it for us, you know, like do it properly. Uh, yeah. Blame it on the intern. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think this is a big problem, right? Uh, I think in the United States, we're going to go through the same sort of situation. This is not related specifically to, to Europe, right? This, this governmental justice system delay piece is, is problematic because you're always at risk, right? In, in any large financial transaction, what you're trying to do is mitigate risk. The, the court system opens up a plethora of risks and whether you can withstand it or not, you have to build it into your project, right? I, I guess right now you, you probably have a set of lawyers on your project that are just there on retainer just for when things come up and whether you spend the budget or not, you don't know. But it, but the, the key is, is that you have to be prepared for these things and try to get them resolved as quickly as possible and not let them drawing out for 20 years. That, that's obviously abnormal. We haven't seen that in a lot of, lot of cases. But, you know, sometimes Europe has that persona of everything is slow, right? Oh, yeah. Europe's great for bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is very thick there, right? And that, uh, which, is a, which is not helping renewables. Right? So at some point, there has to be some level of Ireland can manage Ireland's problems. Uh, France can manage France's problems. We, do, we, do we need a European court to come in and tell France, Ireland, uh, Germany what to do? I, you know, I think there's a fine line there. Now you sound like a Brexiteer. No, a Brexiteer. I mean, that's what they, you know, you, you, don't, you don't like the EU, it sounds like. I think the EU makes a lot of sense. In a lot of cases, it makes sense. But I, again, you've got to put time frames on it. And I'm not sure any individual country can come back to the European Court of Justice and say, this is this is ridiculous. Come on. If you look at the individual European companies, they're no better on their own than, than they are as a as a whole. I saw a post um, on LinkedIn recently by a guy who was trying to develop a, a three wind turbine farm in Germany, and he had the um, he had a full a full like, dining table sized desk full of binders of paperwork, and that was <laughs> that was the all of the um, hard copy information that he needed to provide in in Germany to get approval for three wind turbines so um, they just like it there for some reason and it's been it's been raised repeatedly as a big roadblock to faster uh, energy transition in Europe is just the incredible amount of bureaucracy that goes along with um, new developments and yeah I don't know if they're <laughs> I've been really mean to the Europeans here but I don't know if they're culturally capable of the of the, the change that it would that it would take to you know, streamline that. Well, yeah, we've seen it in Ireland for a long time on the corporate tax policy where the, the corporate taxes are very low. That's why Apple and Microsoft and a number of U.S. firms had had uh, money sitting in Ireland forever because the taxes there were lower. And I think they recently forced Ireland to come up to what, what the average is. I'm not sure what that is right now. And I'm, I'm not sure why Ireland did that. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, every country has its strengths. Every country has its weaknesses. It should play to its strengths. And, and sometimes the Europeans, uh, you know, what's happening in, in Belgium is not conducive to you playing to your strengths. Uh, that's, a, that's a shame because I do think there's countries have a long history. Some of them have a long history of having very specific strengths and we ought to be able to utilize them. I think it makes a stronger Europe. Uh, that's that's my take on it. So whatever that's worth it, me sitting in America. All right. So uh, Rosemary, great episode. Uh, everything uh, is, you know, swimmingly. Renewable energy is still growing. Things are still moving forward, regardless of what we, all the, all the bad news that we hear. So let's just keep things moving forward. 
uh, we're going to have a, a great renewable future. So if you're listening to us, uh, check us out on, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. You can see Rosie on Engineering with Rosie on her massive YouTube channel or check us out on YouTube also. We have a, a growing contingent, which is super. We really appreciate all the subscribers there. So thank you for tuning in to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. We'll see you next week.